Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. There are more than 36 million Kurds living in Iraq, Syria, Iran, and Turkey, all hoping to one day carve out their own politically recognized homeland, a centuries-long dream. In 2017, the Kurds seemingly had it all going for them. Their forces were steadily chipping away at ISIS in Iraq and Syria, gaining more ground, helping out the U.S., which in turn fed the Kurds with training and military gear. But that all seemingly crumbled. ISIS was beaten back on the battlefield, satisfying U.S. needs, while Turkey invaded Syria, pushing the Kurdish forces there back from territory they held since early in the Syrian civil war, and Iraqi forces reclaimed the oil-rich city of Kirkuk from the Kurds. Helping us make sense of where the Kurds now stand is Yost Hilterman, Middle East and North Africa director for the International Crisis Group. Yost, it almost seems as though the Kurds are a disposable ally. Uh, how bad of a situation are the Kurds in right now, given what they've gone through over the past couple of years, rising up the ladder in favor of the U.S. and other allies in the fight against ISIS, now kind of left twisting in the wind? Uh, where are the Kurds at this moment? Well, first of all, we should be a bit careful about the term the Kurds, because, of course, there are many, many Kurds, millions of Kurds, and they are divided over four states in the Middle East, um, Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. Uh, and each uh, population is quite different from the other, and, in fact, there are many differences within these populations, culturally, linguistically, etc. So it's a very diverse uh, population, and they also have their own political parties uh, that are uh, often at odds with each other and fight each other. So... Um, the Kurds that have uh, cooperated with the United States in particular in the past few years um, are in Iraq, really, since uh, 2003 and even so to some extent before. Uh, are the, the two Kurdish parties there, the KDP and POK, it was basically nationalist Kurdish parties. And in Syria, since 2012, the last six years, it has been the Syrian branch of the PKK, which is uh, deemed a, uh, a terrorist organization by Turkey, but also by the United States and by European countries, uh, but whose Syrian affiliate uh, has been a staunch uh, partner uh, of the United States in the battle against uh, the group uh, that goes by the name of the Islamic State. Uh, now, that Islamic State is, uh, is territorially defeated, both in Syria and in Iraq. And so the question is, what happens to these Kurdish parties, which have uh, helped the United States, uh, of course, they were expecting something in return for that help, in particular political recognition and support in their struggle for independence, uh, separate independence, I should say, um, because there is no um, single party that uh, can agree on on the, on, on, the on, on what kind of state it should be and who should be in charge of it. Um, and the United States is 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 very uh, satisfied with the military help it received, but is not necessarily. Uh, going to support these parties in a quest that would uh, contradict the objectives of its 
allies in the Middle East that are more powerful, Turkey and Iraq in particular. As you mentioned, I mean, there are many millions of Kurds in the region, whether they live in Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. Why can't these various political organizations, all these different acronyms, why can't they get together with one vision in order to win statehood and political recognition? Well, mostly because they don't have statehood. That sounds like a paradox, but the history of it is is that uh, after the uh, collapse of the Ottoman Empire um, and uh, at the end of this First World War, a century ago, um, the, um, the, 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 the victorious powers, mainly Britain and France, but also Russia to some extent, carved up the, uh, the region and they uh, created Arab states, uh, but they denied the Kurds uh, the right to have a state of their own. And so the Kurdish populations have grown up under different states in the region, four states, and these states have played the Kurds out against each other. Uh, and, and so they have never been able to unify in any sort of way because the states in which they live have prevented that, precisely because these states don't want a Kurdish state to arise across their own international borders. And therefore, basically, they would lose territory. It, it seemed that the Kurds were on their way towards receiving some sort of statehood recognition as they were helping the U.S. in the fight against ISIS in Iraq and Syria. And then there was a referendum for independence coming from the Kurds in Iraq. And it didn't seem to lead to any progress. Was that a setback for Kurdish hopes for independence, the actual referendum for independence? Yes, it was a setback. Uh, The result of it was a setback. Um, And of course, there were many who advised the Kurdish regional government in Iraq and its leadership to uh, do not go ahead with that referendum, not because necessarily all of them opposed the notion of Kurdish independence, though some clearly did that as well, uh, but because they thought the timing was particularly bad. But from the Kurdish leadership's point of view, the timing was good because they thought that uh, they were at the height Uh, of their popularity in the West. They had accumulated a lot of credit in the fight against the Islamic State. Now that the Islamic State was more or less defeated, they were worried that they would lose international sympathy and support. So this was the moment to move. Um, But they uh, miscalculated um, because in the end, they didn't quite appreciate that for the United States and Russia and all the regional states, Iran and Iraq and Syria and Turkey, The borders established 100 years ago remain very relevant and important and are simply put inviolable. There are still U.S. troops uh, working with Kurds in Syria, uh, close to the city of Manbij. This after the uh, Turkish army invaded into northern Syria, pushed the Kurds out of the enclave of Afrin. The Turks have stopped short of going to Manbij, although there have been threats from Erdogan to do so. Would the Turks go all the way after the Kurds across the Euphrates if the U.S. was not there? How critical is that U.S. presence to the Kurds in Syria right now? Well, it is critical. I think as long as the United States has forces on the ground and uh, extends protection uh, to the Kurds and makes it clear to Turkey, uh, Turkish forces would have uh, would, would would have to ignite a conflict with its NATO partner and and much stronger uh, international ally, the United States. 
uh, over this issue, and they're not going to do that. So as long as the United States is supporting the Kurds in northern Syria, Turkey will not be able to uh, make headway across the Euphrates. Now, I think uh, a deal is being negotiated over the city of Manbij, which is uh, on the western side of the of the Euphrates River, and that's sort of a, sh- a, sh- a small pocket that is still under Kurdish control there. Uh, but um, when it comes to the, the much larger area east of the uh, Euphrates, and these are both Kurdish areas and non-Kurdish areas, uh, controlled by the Kurdish uh, affiliate of the PKK, um, then um, we'll have to see what happens and how long the United States is willing to keep its troops on the ground and with what objective in mind. Uh, because that is totally unclear. The Assad regime has made impressive gains across much of Syria over the past year. Do you see Assad going after those Kurdish territories as well to make sure they're within Syria's uh, borders? And do you think that Moscow would possibly help Assad against the Kurds? You know, ever since the Russian military intervention in Syria in September 2015, the Assad regime has, um, has begun to recover uh, and as it has regained strength, it has also started to retake territory it lost to either rebels uh, in the non-Kurdish parts of Syria and um, the Kurds. To, you know, um, in 2012, the Syrian regime essentially vacated the Kurdish areas, thinking that it would rather have uh, the Kurds in charge of these areas than uh, the rebels um, who have ambitions to overthrow the regime in Damascus, while well, the Kurds have no such ambition. They want simply to carve out an autonomous region in Syria. So um, now, of course, uh, as the regime has uh, started to recover significant areas of the rest of Syria, um, sooner or later it's going to want to also go to the Kurds and say, now we gave you this control over these areas in 2012, now we want it back. Uh, and um, so, you know, what's the deal here? And then negotiations will start. And I think both Russia and the United States can play a positive role in this. Uh, both have made clear, first of all, that they support an, a notion of Kurdish rights and, and a degree of autonomy. Um, and uh, and both, uh, well, in the case of Russia, it wants to preserve the regime, of course, in Damascus and also help it regain sovereignty over its borders. Um, And so, conceivably, but I have to be very careful because um, the devil is in the detail and negotiations haven't even started yet, but conceivably, uh, the Syrian regime could recover control over its international border with Turkey, for example, while um, allowing the Kurds uh, relative autonomy uh, in the parts that the Kurds currently control. But it could go another way as well. It could all break down and you could have serious violence, in fact, in the north, either between the Kurds and the regime or um, between the Kurds and Turkey. So, um, you know, uh, but it really uh, behooves, I think, the United States and to some extent Russia as well to uh, find to mediate a solution to this uh, crisis and to see whether it's possible to maintain a degree of self-government for the Kurds within the overall sovereignty of the Syrian state. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking with Joost Holterman of the International Crisis Group about the current state of the Kurds. We move over to Iraq, where Iraqi troops took Kirkuk back last fall. 
also the surrounding oil fields that had fed the Kurdish economy. Uh, Baghdad has paid, uh, I think, $250 million to the Kurdish regional government to uh, pay government workers and security forces. Is that enough to keep the Kurds at bay in Iraq? Is that what Baghdad is hoping for? They could simply pay off the Kurds and the Kurds will behave under the Iraqi federal government? Well, you know, the, the Kurds will never give up their the dream of independence. Um, and that dream has been fed by a succession of governments in Baghdad over the last 100 years that have uh, at best discriminated against the Kurds and at worst have committed mass murder. So uh, for the Kurds, um, there is only there are two solutions. One is independence. And the other one is some kind of arrangement where the government in Baghdad is democratic enough that it would not uh, resort again to major violence to keep uh, the uh, Kurds on a short leash. Now, the current government in Baghdad, the problem with it is it's relatively democratic. We've had elections uh, only a couple of months ago. Um, But it is also highly dysfunctional, and it cannot really make any deal and make it stick with the Kurdish government. Um, And this is uh, leading to great frustration on the Kurds' part. Um, So the the referendum that occurred in September of last year um, had had a a sort of negative fallout for the Kurds, rather disastrous fallout. And now the the government in Baghdad uh, knows that it has uh, major leverage and international support uh, and has therefore put the Kurds again on a on a on a really on a short shorter leash than it has had since 2003. And the question is, how long will the Kurds put up with that? And what can they do against it? And they will need to muster international support on their behalf in order to push back some of the restrictions that Baghdad has placed on it. Um, it's not a sustainable situation, but at the moment both sides are talking, and I think that once a new government is formed in Iraq based on the May elections. And as soon as the elections for the Kurdish parliament take place at the end of September and a new government is formed there, then the two sides will have to start talking to each other again about the sharing of oil revenues uh, and about the status of the disputed territories, not just Kirkuk and the oil fields, but it's really a very wide belt all the way from the Syrian to the Iranian border that happens to be uh, very rich in oil and have a very a diverse population, not only of Arabs and Kurds, but also of Turkmen and other minority groups. And given that ISIS has largely been defeated on the battlefield in Iraq, uh, would Baghdad still see the Kurds as a necessary bulwark against a, a possible rise from ISIS again, or Al-Qaeda or another terrorist group that might try to rise against the government? Might they, they see the Kurds as a, a necessary ally, given their, their military strength and fighting capability? Well, the Kurds were, were a necessary ally, but not a bulwark necessarily, because ISIS never entered the Kurdish areas. They entered only the disputed territories. Um, and so because the Iraqi government has retaken the disputed territories uh, last year after the independence referendum, um, the real threat that um, it faces from ISIS is in those areas, and the Kurdish security forces are no longer there. Um, but what is there instead is not only the Iraqi security forces under the defense ministry and the federal police, but also paramilitary groups that belong to political parties, Shia, mainly Shia political parties. Uh, and these groups um, are both uh, a potent um, 
enemy to the Islamic State, but also foments the kind of uh, problems in the disputed territories that would actually encourage the Islamic State, uh, because they are sectarian. Uh, and because the population in the disputed territories is mainly non-Shia, there are some Shia pockets as well, the presence of these Shia militias essentially is alienating the population from uh, from these groups and may throw them back into the embrace of the Islamic State. So the, the conflict is far from over in these areas, and it may well be that in the future, if the Iraqi security forces prove uh, too weak still to really stand up to a resurgent Islamic State, uh, that the Iraqi government may call on the Kurdish forces and say, please come and help us in the disputed territories, and in exchange we'll have to give you uh, joint control, for example. So it could go that way. The Kurds espouse democratic principles in a very undemocratic region. How closely do the Kurds resemble Western liberal democracy? Not at all. Um, and, and, and in fact, they're no different from the, the, the government in Baghdad in that sense. They both uh, organize elections, um, but they, they lack uh, democratic institutions. And so you have a process that, is, uh, that has the veneer of democracy, uh, but there is a lot, a lot of shenanigans are going on in these elections. And in the last elections in the Kurdish areas, we saw mass, uh, you know, claims of massive fraud. And there's a, currently a recount going on in those areas. Um, uh, but 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 what is lacking is is independent uh, st- state institutions that that provide oversight. Um, the electoral commissions exist in both the Kurdish region and in Baghdad, but they are relatively toothless. Uh, you have an audit commission. You have um, uh, um, uh, other uh, judicial uh, institutions that uh, are there to oversee. Um, the, uh, the the law and order, uh, or sorry, the rule of law, uh, in these areas, but they don't they're, they're politicized and, they, and they're not really functioning. So, you cannot really compare it with um, with the the liberal order we have uh, known in uh, in Europe and the United States, but uh, even in the United States and to some extent in Europe, this order is under threat. The final question, Yost: Are Kurdish dreams of independence in better shape now compared to five years ago? If you talk about the Kurds in Iraq, I would say it was better five years ago or even a year ago than it is now. Uh, there is a, a split before the independence referendum and after. It is, it is signally different, more difficult uh, after the referendum, which led to a setback of maybe two decades uh, for the Kurds. They will have to uh, start a, a slow process of rebuilding everything they had in terms of uh, 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 political sympathies and uh, economic advantages um, that they accumulated really over over the last since 2003 and even since 1991 uh, after the invasion of Kuwait. So um, that 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 is going to be very tough in Syria. They were never close to it, um, but I think what they've gained there and what is still uh, certainly um, you know within the realm of the possible is is a degree of self-government, and we'll have to see. Where that goes, but independence is, is is out of the question in northern Syria for for the time being. And that ancient dream will continue for the Kurds. Yost, thank you very much for your time. We've been joined by Yost Holterman, Middle East and North Africa director for the International Crisis Group. Thanks for listening to the Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. 
The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 